Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome to WhatsApp, a space for Asian American progressive voices in California. Welcome to WhatsApp. I'm Gian Carolyn Park, and with me is Rex here. <laughs> and um, we're going to talk about housing rights in the Asian American community in. LA specifically today. We have special guests, Katie Wang and Brian C of Chinatown Community for Equitable Development in LA, which is an all-volunteer, multi-ethnic, interracial, intergenerational organization based in Chinatown that builds grassroots power through organizing, education, and mutual help. So, um, Katie and Brian, um, what is your favorite fact about LA's Chinatown that most people may not know? Thanks for the question. Um, excited to be here. Uh, yeah, I'm Katie. She her pronouns, and my my favorite fact I would say um, is that. People really live in Chinatown. Um, I think there's some misconception that a lot of folks um, who like Chinese immigrants who used to live in Chinatown have since moved out to the San Gabriel Valley. Um, but really, there's at least like 20,000 people who live in Chinatown. Um, and I think some of why there's a misconception is that, you know, people don't live in kind of like the main stretch of Chinatown in a really visible way. Um, so a lot of folks live on top of the storefronts, like and the second story, um, people live kind of like beyond the main stretch and like more residential parts of Chinatown. Um, and that it's something that I continue to remind myself about, um, like this, like breaking myth thing. Um, and that Chinatown is a real community um, where like people have spent many decades building it, um, putting a lot of energy into it, making it home. Um, and so that's like a key part of why, like to me, it's like, oh, this is why it's not a, just a destination for tourists and trendy things to come into. Yeah, I think uh, I think a lot of people don't know that, so that's uh, that's a really good thing to share. Um, Brian, what about you? I think mine is similar to Katie's point. Um, I don't know if it's a fact, but I when I when I was. Starting to work with CCD, one of the organizers, Francis, um, took me to these gardens that people were growing um, in places that you really wouldn't normally grow food at all. Um, and it was really interesting. She, she, I thought I was going to get like a, a sort of um, like layout of Chinatown with her she had been organizing for a while and said she started taking me to these like this back road and then down an alley and then we walked up a hill with like a fence and we went through and there was this whole elaborate garden built into the side of this hill you would never expect it, it was hidden from sight and everything in it was uh kind of like ad hoc made you know it wasn't like things you would buy from a hardware store it was extremely resourceful um and so i think you know, to me, it's not quite a fact, a fun fact about Chinatown, but it's more just like it shows that people have really made this place home and have adapted the space and used it, um, you know, to thrive. So, yeah, that that was a, a really nice surprise. I think ad hoc gardens are super fun. So yes. I think it's a fun fact. Is it a, like a community garden or just like some 
Um, she, she showed me some that were like located closer to the street that seemed more communal. Um, and I've come across other community gardens like at 920 Everett, which maybe we'll talk about later. They have a garden that um, all the tenants seem to share. Um, but this one, I don't know. Um, I mean, we walked into it and we we walked around. So, I mean, I guess you could say it's a community garden. We didn't, I, we didn't take anything, though. I love that. What Can you just tell us like some of the things that they were growing there? Ooh, it was, this was a while ago, but I want to say greens, you know, I want to say um, like for some reason kale comes to mind, but I don't know if I'm making that up or not. Um, tomatoes. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, peppers. I don't know. Love it. It was pretty common stuff. Yeah. Love it. Love it. This is all like up the hill past the main street, isn't it? Oh yeah. Yeah. This is, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's bringing back memories. I used to intern at the Chinese historical society, uh, down there back in like 2014, 2015, while I was still going to UCLA. So, yeah, a lot of what uh, you and Katie are saying are very, is I kind of experienced it. I've made some friends who actually live there and there is a thriving community there, which, <laughs> which uh, brings up the question, like, how did you two uh, end up organizing with uh, CCED and was it around for a while? <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm I'm a little bit newer to CCD, and I think I just found CCD through Facebook or social media. Uh, I was looking to get involved in anti-gentrification work in LA. Um, I went to some other organizations. Um, I was taking photos a lot, um, and I just I think I just vibed with CCD out of all the other orgs. Uh, I really liked the work they were doing. I really admired it. At the time, they had just started their lawsuit um, against Atlas Capital. And so I was reading about that. And I just I was super impressed with the work they were doing on so many levels. So I think I met up with one of them at a Green New Deal talk that Sunrise Movement was holding in Little Tokyo. And that was that was how I got connected. Can you tell us a little bit about the, just a tiny bit about the Atlas lawsuit? Yeah, I think Katie would probably be best for that. Okay. She, yeah. No she knows, so I'll pass it to her. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll just start with the stuff about Atlas Capital. Um, that we are, CCD is in a lawsuit where we've sued Atlas Capital, who's a big developer. They have properties in LA, New York, lots of places. Um, and we sued them because they proposed a um, a really big development to go right across the street from the Metro Gold Line station in Chinatown. Um, and it had zero affordable housing units. So that was our main like purpose for suing them and really with the hope of stopping them from building it. And right now there's an empty lot there. And so we've been able to delay them. That's what's happening right now. We're in a lawsuit. We sued them. Um, we lost their like kind of main part of the lawsuit and now we're doing an appeal. Um, and so, yeah, that's where we're at. And we're really hoping to, um, you know, win that lawsuit and ultimately be able to have something else in that place that's affordable housing and not uh, market rate housing. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll just share a little bit about 
how I ended up with CCD. Um, it's kind of a funny story. Um, it was like maybe 2013. I was um, coming out of um, studying Asian American studies in college, um, moving into a master's in Asian American studies. And I was like, oh, I really just want to know what organizing is like. What does that really mean to be organizing? Um, and so I did this training called Summer Activist Training, um, which is sort of put on by a whole bunch of small Asian American grassroots organizations, CCD being one of them. And some of the founding orgs are kind of like the big, big orgs that people know about in LA. Um, so like Koreatown Immigrant Workers Alliance, Thai CDC, um, Filipino Worker Center, um, Nikkei for Civil Rights and Redress. Those are like some of the orgs that are part of the founding of it. And so I was just in the training sort of as like, I want to learn what organizing really means. Um, and uh, yeah, one of the folks who came to speak, um, King, who's like our longtime OG, one of our OG organizers, um, he was really persistent in reaching out to me. So ultimately, that's like why I got involved. Um, I remember him asking me to get fun with him after the training. Um, and yeah, I was really like looking for a political home, a place to be organizing. Um, and yeah, maybe I'll just say also what I do and maybe you can pass back to Brian what we do in the organization. Um, I'm on the Fighting Developments Committee. So CCD has a bunch of different committees. We do so many different kinds of things, but my work really focuses on like the Atlas lawsuit. Um, how are we really addressing the um, around like 40 plus new developments that are proposed for Chinatown. So that really ranges from like breweries, wineries, fancy restaurants um, to market rate housing. Um, and so we're really trying to think about um, how can we be strategic and fighting against those things. And so that's what my work involves. And I'll pass to Brian to talk about maybe what your role in CCD is. Yeah, I mean, I do um, work in the communications communications committee. So, uh, you know, social media, um, press, publishing, flyers, um, videos, photos, um, st stuff like that. So just the communications arm. Um, y'all are doing such a great job. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, you have a really great, um, social media feed. Everyone check it out. Um, what's the handle? At CCDLA. All right, cool. Um, and yeah, y'all are really at the forefront of, um, uh, one of the groups that's really at the forefront of like grassroots organizing around housing in LA. So um, you mentioned the lawsuit. Um, what else does CCED do around housing? Yeah, I can start that off. Um, I guess I'd start with some of our core values. So two of them that I would lift up is that we demand 100% truly affordable housing. And kind of what I'd pull out of that piece is that um, what that means to us is that a lot of times there are buildings that come into Chinatown and say things are affordable, um, but that's really based on the income of all of LA. It's not really based on what's affordable for people who live in Chinatown, uh, where the median income is around the poverty line. Um, and so we're really 
looking really looking for affordable housing that's like actually affordable for what people can actually afford, um, which sounds a little redundant. Um, and then the second part of it is nothing about us without us. Um, and so that's that's another value that we have around like we're really advocating for a community voice and what comes into Chinatown. Um, and so a lot of our work, you know, we're advocating for affordable housing. We're doing tenant organizing. Um, we're also but we're also advocating for like a real voice and what comes into our community. Um, and so what that that's really looked like sort of making public comment at um, city hall meetings and those kinds of things um, really to be um, bring bring up that our tenants really have a lot to say about what's going on. Um, and then I guess I'll just focus a little bit more about like what our organizing with Chinatown tenants really looks like. Um, and I think that organizing, I think I know that when I um, first came to CCD, I didn't really know what that meant. Um, but I, I guess I'll just illustrate it a little bit more with an example. And so one of the buildings that we work really closely with now, and is like one of our like really strong tenant unions that we work with is at 651 Broadway. Um, people who are familiar with Chinatown, there's like a pet store there. Um, it's at like the intersection of Ord and Broadway. And um, yeah, and like kind of what was happening during like how we started to work with this building is that from like 2013 to 2018, around there, um, you know, we had, we had, uh, so our organization started as we were fighting against Walmart. And so that's like the kind of like big impetus for our organization to be started. Um, and we really saw that as a part of gentrification. So as we lost that fight, Walmart ultimately came into Chinatown. Um, we really shifted to talk about gentrification, to talk about what kind of displacement is going to happen in this community. And so we did a lot of door knocking. So like for like five years from 2013, probably till 2017, 2018, um, we're doing a lot of door knocking. And really what that involved is just talking to people about how's your rent? How's your landlord? You know, are you experiencing any harassment? Um, how long have you been living here? You know, just trying to get a sense of what it what it's been like for folks who are living in Chinatown. And we heard a lot of stories, a lot of stories of people who are, um, you know, getting harassed by their landlord, getting unfair rent increases, all these kinds of things. And so often we would have people trying to ask us for help, but we really wanted to emphasize that we're not about service. We're not trying to be like, here's legal aid, that kind of stuff. Like we connect people to resources for sure. But our main idea is that we believe that um, you know, you can be as a tenant, you can be organizing with your other tenants. You can talk to them. You can talk to them about what problems you're seeing. You can figure out what you want to fight for together. And so that's really what happened with this specific building, 651, um, in that uh, I was like looking through my notes and I found this email that we got Um and so basically, uh, there's this one tenant in the building who reached out to us. Her name's Addie. She is like really warm Latina woman. She's like so bubbly. She um, really, the people in her building in 651 are, there's a couple of Spanish speakers, um, mostly Cantonese, some Vietnamese. Um, and she, you know, was really able to connect with tenants sort of across language. I'm not sure how she did that, but she was so like warm. Um, and so really what happened was she reached out to um, one of our other organizers one of our OG organizers Craig um, who sent us over this email to the 
kind of the whole Chinatown, all the CCD folks. Um, and what he said was saying that he got a call from Addie, um, that she was trying to pay her, her and her mother's rent at the bank. Um, and so they usually would pay their rent like in cash to the bank teller. And that's a little unusual, but the reason was is because the landlord of their building also was a chairman at that bank. And so he had a special deal where he had his tenants pay their rent there. And so what, what happened with Addie is she was paying her rent in cash. The teller tells her, actually, it's been increased a hundred dollars. Um, and you know, Craig in his emails telling us like, that's not, that's not a proper way to notify somebody of a rent increase. That's too much. The, um, this building is, um, we call an SRO, which Rex probably is familiar with. It's a single resident occupancy kind of building, um, which means everyone has a room and then they all share like kitchen and bathroom and that kind of stuff. Um, and so, and those kinds of buildings, there should be more, um, you know, limits on those kinds of increases. Yeah. So instantly we knew this was like not allowed. Um, and so kind of what, what kind of happened from there is that um, Addie was able to like get in touch with all these people who lived in the building. Um, she and some of us helped to mobilize people. Um, we got a group together. Um, they really decided, you know, what are we going to do about this rent increase? And we, we found out after they talked to each other, people had really different amounts of rent increases, which feels really like uh. wild. <laughs> yeah, it's like not everyone was $100. Some people had different amount increases. Um, and yeah, and so they kind of came together, figured out that what they wanted to do is they wanted to refuse to pay this increase. And so that's what they did. They ultimately all collectively, like maybe like 20 plus 30 tenants all together went to the bank and refused to pay the extra amount. They just paid their original amount. Um, and so they did that for a few months and like it got to the point where the bank called the cops on them. And like, if you can picture it, it's like, you know, some of these tenants are like in their eighties, you know, some are um, disabled, some are like, you know, uh, you know, just kind of <laughs> um, benign, not like aggressive or anything. Um, and we're really, you know, th they threatened the bank. And so ultimately the bank would lock the doors on them, wouldn't let them come in and pay their rent. Um, but ultimately this was a win. Um, after a few months of paying their rent in this way, the, the landlord did not increase their rent. They, the landlord never tried again. Um, and so I think that's like, you know, huge, just like what it kind of looks like to be organizing and that people came together, decide what they want. And then they fought against the landlord and they were able to get it. So um, they're still, you know, fighting other kinds of fights now, but um, that's one example that I would share. I am That's absolutely amazing. terrible at quoting the news, but I swear that this show, this event showed up uh, in the news a while back, while back in 2018, when I was like also doing uh, canvassing and door knocking and know your rights trainings with tenants and trying to get tenant unions going. So yeah, my, I think my uh, coworkers definitely shared the story around. So I'm not going to ask, like, why does CCAD call itself a grassroots org? Because <laughs> obviously you are a grassroots organization. But I do want to ask, like, what does that mean to CCED? Like, and how has being a grassroots organization and its methods uh, really affected the work? And would there, would, would there be something that is easier with the model and what's harder with the model? 
That's a great question. Um, I think, you know, by definition, grassroots means that it's it's local. And we like to think like that it's hyper local, that it's down to the people living in the neighborhood to decide things. Um, they're the decision makers, not their council members, not the politicians, not developers. And I think by being grassroots, we can really um, speak freely and say what we think needs to be said, given our analysis, um, versus being concerned of like uh, frustrating the wrong people or rubbing the, 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 our donors the wrong way, or you know, things that nonprofits tend to worry about. Um, I actually worked in a nonprofit before CCD, and I saw how a lot of their donors were actually developers. And so when gentrification came through that neighborhood where the nonprofit was, they really couldn't take a strong stance about it, you know? Um, so to me, it's super valuable on a personal level that CCD is grassroots because um, we we really are free to speak truth to power, I guess. Um, Katie, do you have anything that you wanna add to the, the grassroots aspect? No, I think you really got it. I think definitely the part, what you kind of asked Rex about, like, what is a good thing about it? What's not as good thing about it? And I think the really good thing is that we kind of get to do whatever we want in some ways. Like we get to whatever our tenants want, whatever we want, um, we can kind of do it. We don't have to worry about like a foundation or corporate sponsor breathing down our neck. And that's like a really amazing part of our work. Um, and I really see it in the way that we, um, you know, get to get to, we can speak up against Atlas. We can speak up against even our city officials and not worry. It's going to impact like who we are, like our ability to exist. Is Atlas that one fancy building of all glass that sprung up on Broadway as well? Because... Yeah, I, I kind of saw the gentrification firsthand because after I was done with uh, uh, interning at the Chinese Historical Society, I did like go and visit LA and you see it and it's pretty scary. Yeah, definitely. I think it's there's actually two, but I think the one you're talking about that looks very shiny is Blossom Plaza. Um, yeah. And so it's really shiny. It looks really beautiful. Um, but yeah, that's definitely like visible marker of gentrification right on the main stretch. Um, so given that we're in a pandemic now, um, people can't really pay their rent. A lot of folks can't pay their rent. Um, what are some of the common tenant issues and housing issues that you're seeing these days? Yeah, I can start us off and then maybe I'll ask Brian to speak on some examples after. But um, yeah, what I would say, like the common ones that that generally we see and I think are still happening um, are general landlord harassment. Um, and so I think that can look in, that can look many different ways, you know, it can look like your property manager being mean to you and like, you know, saying, you know, being difficult, um, not cleaning, not cleaning or making repairs is definitely what we see as part of that is like neglect. Um, and sometimes it's, you know, I think for me as somebody who's also a renter, I'm like, well, you know, repairs aren't so bad, but I think sometimes they're really severe. Like, um, if you're someone who's 
a senior, someone who has trouble like moving around and then there's no lights in your hallway or um, there's no like uh, wheelchair accessibility. Um, there's only stairs. Um, there's also times when like in some of our buildings, like in the one I was talking about earlier in the 651 Broadway building, um, it's, you know, many rooms together in one building. And so sometimes the lock in the back of their door is not, doesn't work. And so they'll have issues where like random people are walking through their building. So it's like real, there's real stakes in some of these repairs. Um, and then, you know, I think part of that, the like more visible parts of, I think like landlord harassment is just like rent increases, illegal rent increases when, um, you know, landlords are really not allowed to raise the rent. Um, and I think related to both of those is some other tactic that we call cash for keys. Um, and which is this idea that, um, you know, landlords are seeing that property values in Chinatown are going up and they're like, you know, I could really sell this for a lot of money. How do I do that? And so they'll really try to push tenants out to be able to sell an empty building, which is like obviously more desirable to a buyer than one with tenants in it. And so they'll increase the rent on people. They'll like harass them. They'll like not fix things, all those things to encourage people to leave. Um, and then often the actual cash for keys part is they'll offer them money um, to leave and you know, that's, it's a, it's an allowed thing. Um, but it's really unfair. It's like usually like maybe $10,000, um, or it could be less, could be more. And it's not really enough for people to find housing in other parts of LA. Um, and sometimes that does mean they, they're not allowed to, they kind of can't afford to stay in China anymore. Um, so those are kind of the common pieces, um, the common, um, issues with people's housing. And then I would add just like some overlooked ones I probably would say are like anything that's like language related. I think that like specifically when we're talking about cash for keys, sometimes tenants will receive paperwork where it's like all in English, trying to get them to sign this thing, which just makes them leave. Um, and they're really aggressive about it. Like sometimes there's a person that comes to your door every single day with the same paperwork and it's in English and you don't understand. Um, and so that's like a part of it that I think really is, um, people don't think about that part. Um, yeah, maybe I'll just pass to Brian to share any examples that you could talk about 920 or other folks. Yeah, I mean, I think the pandemic has really exacerbated some of these tactics. I think um, what I've seen with 920 is that um, the landlord is almost counting on, um, you know, people not being aware of their pandemic rights, let's say, if you can even call them that, um, to, you know, with the eviction moratorium. And so they're still trying to push tenants through, um, like either neglecting repairs, like what Katie said, or, um, you know, maybe cash for keys, maybe just harassment, um, still giving 60 day quit notices. I mean, they'll just try things to see if you will self evict. And that's something that I think we always kind of fear across the board at CCD is like, are people self evicting without um, putting up a fight, joining LA Tenants Union or CCD to fight? Um, and so in the pandemic, we saw that really accelerate, right? People self-evicted in huge numbers across cities all over the place, right? And people are moving back with family and, you know, so um, a lot of it comes down to like outreach and hoping that people stay where they're 
where they're at to, to put up a fight and, you know, go through the legal process so that, um, they have like proper protections. I think I would also add in the pandemic, um, you know, the eviction moratorium was really confusing. I mean, it's, it's not clear how it operates, when it operates until it kept getting renewed. Who has say, is it the local government? Is it the federal government? Um, there's a lot of confusion. So, I think as Katie was mentioning, a lot of it is like just get it, disseminating information, right? And disseminating it in a way that's culturally appropriate for different tenants. We have, you know, Cambodian tenants, uh, Vietnamese tenants, Cantonese speaking tenants, Spanish speaking tenants, right? So it's like, how do you disseminate information to all these different folks and keep a consistent message? Um, recently, it's also looked like you know, signing people up for vaccines in the language, you get again, like language justice, right? Like how do they get through the sign up process? Um, I think the original question was about like our work in the pandemic, correct? This is where we're at right now. Um, you know, we started organizing with small businesses as Chinatown began losing its, its uh, full service grocery stores. And this was happening pre-pandemic. So 2019, to 2020, it lost G&G Market and Iwa. And these are grocers that have like a whole meat department, fish, um, you know, and then all your canned goods, all your produce, so full service. Um, and those two grocery stores closed down. So Chinatown effectively had no grocery stores besides like the street vendors and produce and some meat markets, but it's all scattered, right? So you have to think like if you are an elderly you know, a uh, Chinese tenant and you're walking everywhere and you're walking up these hills, like one stop becomes three, you know, or one walk becomes a three hour ordeal because you're waiting for the bus and then you're riding public transportation to the next grocery store in the next town over. So, um, again, when the pandemic hit, these things accelerated again. So small businesses, as we know, in Chinatown, were really some of the first to see business drop severely, maybe because of xenophobia, maybe because just everyone was hurting in the pandemic. You know, it's a combination. But um, our work really shifted to start to do outreach to small businesses and seeing them as tenants and potential, um, you know, people to organize with, people to put up fights, people to um, demand that they have the right to stay and continue serving the community as mom and pop businesses. Um, what would it look like if Chinatown lost all those businesses? Those kind of things that we asked ourselves, like what would it look like if Chinatown no longer had the infrastructure to provide resources for its community? you know, via the small businesses. So, um, yeah, I think the work that we were doing before the pandemic is just, you know, kind of deepened and our understanding of it has grown too. I think like we've grown a lot as an organization. Yeah. So do you all, um, translate the materials yourselves and, and then, and then disseminate, uh, that info yourselves? Yeah, there's definitely a core group of people who translate for us and we try to, you know, do things in the appropriate language, depending on the context. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I feel like 
sometimes like to be an effective organizer, sometimes it's as simple as just having language capacity. You know, we would love to have um, Canto speakers, Spanish speakers, you know, that's, that's huge. Yeah. When I was um, running in the election that um, ADEM election in the democratic party, because it's an, it's a, it's an election within the party. Um, there was no right for um, for people to have in language uh, materials. And so the registration form was just in English. Chinatown is in the district that I represent and I couldn't disseminate any any materials. So I was like trying to, you know, find somebody to, to translate, but, and I wasn't able to, but it was driving me nuts that, that, that was the case. I mean, it's just, it's just wild to me. Um, so kudos to you for, for doing that. It's so important. And with like cope. Yeah. With the COVID information too. Um, but I do want to say though, I really wish that there was one organization that just did translation <laughs> right <laughs> for every other nonprofit and um you know for whatever whatever need ar arises you know i i really wish that that kind of nonprofit existed that's a really cool thought that's a really cool thought i latu has um i don't know like language justice folks that show up and their job is um like they hand out like uh what is it like earpieces walkies and they're like translating in real time i thought that was you know that language justice component is super smart that's amazing i know dsa has a language um justice uh committee um but it's like there needs to be a group that gets grants and actually has paid staff to be yes. able to do it full time, you know? Yeah. Cause it's so expensive. It's so cost prohibitive when you go to like real translation. So, I mean, again, like CCD is all volunteer. So people are volunteering their time. I know people who ask their parents to help them translate, you know, like they take it to it's, it's beautiful. It's such a communal effort, but yeah, it's a real, it's a real component that needs to be looked at more. I think. And it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of skill and there should just be people who are paid to do it. Really? The city should have that. But, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Or grassroots <laughs> in the cities. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, Definitely just recently, not. I mean, I think it's worth, I think it's worth pointing out that recently at the, there was a food drop, right? There was a food handout recently. I won't, I won't go into too many specifics, but I mean, they had no language, uh, they had no Cantonese speakers there. So they were shouting at our tenants, apparently, you know, in English and our tenants couldn't understand them. And there was this huge disconnect, but it's like, you know, it, how are you going to deliver meals to this community that you know is, it's Chinatown and you have no Cantonese speakers show up to help with distribution? It just, you know, just doesn't make sense. In addition to like language needs, what other uh, special needs do you feel like AAPI and not just AAPI, like there's definitely more than just Cantonese uh, and Mandarin speakers in Chinatown. So, yeah, what do you think uh, the needs are and how how does CCAD meet them? Yeah, yeah. 
definitely language is what came to mind first with this question um, in that um, I know for a lot of like the folks in Chinatown, like we've mentioned before, there's so many like languages often in our meetings. So when we would have in-person meetings, sometimes we would have like, um, we've had events where we did consecutive translation, like Cantonese and Spanish. And so then your meeting is three times as long. Um, and then when we got a little more savvy there, we had some like um, use the little earpieces and stuff. And then we had translation like options and Cantonese Mandarin and and um, Spanish, um, but then there's need sometimes for like uh, specific dialects like Toisan and like um, Vietnamese and Khmer. Um, and so sometimes it's, you know, just is very challenging. And there'll be times when we have a lot of trouble just like organizing with tenants that we can't communicate with. Um, and then I guess what I would add is only other thing that came to mind around this is like, um, folks that we organize with have really differing um, relationships with fighting against or trusting the government. And I think that's like, you know, comes from trauma from the countries that folks are coming from. But maybe it's like some suspicion from taking government aid or like concern that it's going to get them in trouble in some way. Or maybe it's like, you know, feeling afraid to fight back in certain ways. Um, and so I think that's all related to like immigration stories. Um, and so those are some pieces that I, I, I really struggle with and that um, there, you know, it really ranges. There are some tenants who are like always fighting, always like um, ready to fight against um, the electeds and fight against whatever system we're working with. Um, but then there's others who are like, oh, you know what? The landlord did do this now and we're okay. You know, so it really, you know, it varies. And I think that's a lot of it has to do with like immigration and culture. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I wonder if Brian, you have anything to add to that one? Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I think for me, it still just goes back to some housing things, you know, affordability, um, livability, um, the conditions, um, the location. Um, so, you know, I think in general in L.A., the the landscape of tenant rights is very fraught and they're very there's very few tenant rights. And so um, I think that's really what people are facing in our community because i mean big picture wise chinatown is close to downtown right so its location is like close to uh like business district where people are going to want to commute it's close to dodger stadium uh there's highways running through it so spatially like i think what's unique about chinatown is that um it it is uh, a good place, let's say a good place, quote unquote, to speculate on real estate, um, meaning that like people do think that they can develop luxury apartments and over the long term, uh, Chinatown will become this sort of commuter place, this sort of in between, you know, you're right by Echo Park, you're right by Dodger Stadium, you're right by downtown. And that's attractive to gentrifiers, to young professionals, to people with disposable income. Um, there's also like the sort of cultural exoticism that comes with that. So um, I think, you know, Rex, some of the unique things that our tenants are facing has to do with just their space, like what space they occupy and how attractive that is to real estate. I mean, cause real estate is really playing a long game. Um, 
you know, uh, they're not necessarily thinking about providing housing for people. They're thinking about return on an investment over many, many generations and years. So again, with um, like the grocery store, for example, that's going to become, we think like a boutique hotel, right? And then um, a place that was uh, like a, a Vietnamese restaurant is becoming the Harmony Apartments. And it's, you know, going to be this monstrous development of luxury housing, I believe. So, you know, um, I think, I think those are things that I think about. Um, The gold line runs through it. Um, Yeah. So there's, there's just like from a transportation perspective, um, people can kind of hide behind, okay, we want to build dense housing near transportation. And they kind of use uh, like environmentalism, as an argument to, to develop near trans, public transportation, but really it's just another way to usher in gentrification. Um, so yeah. I, people already there. Exactly, exactly. Because they're not paying market rate rent. So, you know, it's like, you're not making a good return on your investment. Um, yeah, so it's, it's really kind of primed for the ugliness of gentrification and displacement. I read about some real estate development that's coming up near the gold line that has a a low percentage of quote unquote affordable units. And it was, and I, and I asked the question, how was it even able to be approved? And then somebody, somebody told me that it was because there's some exception because it's close to the gold line. Exactly. Which is a backwards reason. Like, that's crazy to me. It's, yeah, it makes no sense because the, if you build luxury apartments near public transportation, like we know that uh, high income earners usually own a car. They usually own multiple cars and they also sweep up the, the, the spots close to public transportation. So it's like, it just doesn't make sense on any level to me. So the people who need public transportation the most um, can't live next to the public transportation. Mm. That makes no sense. Right. And the people who can afford to also have cars that they can drive when they don't feel like taking public transport. Yeah. It it makes no sense. I think it's like that, that particular uh, legislation that you're talking about, I think it's called like transit oriented developments. It's to me, it's just like using environmentalism to, I think maybe you could say like greenwash over communities. Yep. Yep. Um, And well, actually in in relation to that specific point, so are are you all, is CCED um, addressing that particular issue? Um, You mean specifically around transit oriented stuff? Like that particular, um, that particular law or that particular um, development. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're definitely pushing against like, you know, I think there's that one that we're fighting against in our lawsuit, the college station project um, that's proposed, proposed without 
any affordable housing. And then there's another one that Brian was talking about, um, which is going to take be right across the street from Blossom Plaza, which we mentioned earlier. Um, and that one is there used to be a restaurant there called Fa Broadway, which really sadly closed. And um, a new development is proposed there for um, like, I think around nine affordable housing units, which is um, pretty heinous in our view. Um, and out of, out of how many total units? Around 150, I think is what we have. Um, yeah. So it's really, yeah, it's really like uh, very few um, proposed there. And yeah, we're fighting against these kinds of developments that are coming in. Um, I think specifically College Station, that probably does fall under the transit-oriented stuff um, because it's right across from the um, the metro station. Um, and so we're not we're not fighting against this policy in particular, but we are like trying to address like look at all these market rate units that are coming into this really poor and working class neighborhood. Um, you know, people are talking about, we need to address the housing crisis. And I'm like, Mercury housing is not going to solve that problem. Um, it's not going to make it so people can have a place to live. Um, you know, there's tons of market rate units available. That's not the issue here. Um, so we're really trying to like lift up that part that it's really affordable housing that we need here. Um, and there are some other like loophole things that we've sort of learned along the way. Like I think there's some laws in, in LA where a developer can build a building and they have to sort of like build some amount of affordable housing when they build something, but it doesn't have to be in the building. It can be someplace else in somewhere else in their portfolio. Um, and so that's like very unhelpful to us. Um, and then also there's some other, like the transit oriented, other types of things like that. Um, like uh, the college station project that we're fighting against, um, I think it kind of just snuck under the wire before some of the recent housing legislation passed. And so that was another thing, sort of like things that were greenlit a little early um, before our recent like um, better housing legislation. So those are some other things that we've been noticing. And you're um, advocating around the college station issue with um, the litigation and like public comment or something. Yeah, that's that's the one we're in the lawsuit around with Atlas Capital. Yeah. How specifically right now during the pandemic has CCD like changed tactics and uh, do the work around tenants' rights? Yeah, that's a great question. Did you have something else to add? Well, basically in response to the pandemic. I think like... Uh, our organizing has changed quite a bit um, in terms of not being able to be on the ground as much and be in person, which is really, I feel like the bread and butter of what we do is almost like outreach. I agree. <laughs> it's so yeah. different. It's so different. Yeah. So, and there was definitely a, uh, let's say like a learning curve for technology, like getting tenants on zoom and getting them to call into these large meetings. Um, so that, definitely took some time to get up and running. And I think, um, you know, two really beautiful things happened, I think, during the pandemic that CCD facilitated. One was um, we got a lot more volunteers, right? And to me, that says that people are becoming more politicized. They're starting to think about the systems and the society that we've built and how it's failed in many ways and wanting to find alternatives to those traditional pathways like politics, let's say, or relying on like a legal 
you know, a legal foundation to make decisions, but starting to see that um, grassroots efforts are quick to respond and effective. Um, and so, yeah, a huge influx of volunteers, a lot of new energy, uh, people that want to do new projects in CCD. Um, like a fun one might be like we started a TikTok. So, you know, follow our TikTok. But, um, you know, other things might be that we're thinking about small businesses a lot more and people have energy to do a lot of outreach and start doing site fights with small businesses and create a coupon book. And that raises money for the businesses, you know, so people are willing to take on these new projects that we didn't really have bandwidth to do before, nor did we even have like maybe the imaginative capacity to do. And then the second thing that happened was mutual aid and uh, you know, this was a huge effort from some core volunteers. They know who they are, but um, they really stepped up and created this whole mutual aid system um, along with Sika. Um, and uh, that's another group in Chinatown that works with youth. Yeah, so they were working with Sika, Southeast Asian Community Alliance, for a little bit. And together they were gathering these food packages, these meals that were culturally specific to our tenants. So, you know, the, the, the government program had like ham and cheese that they were handing out. Literally, we, we like saw one of these packages. It was just like frozen ham and like a bunch of cheese. And it's like, if you're Asian, <laughs> you know yeah. it's like, do you got rice to go with that? <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to do with that? So, you know, our volunteers um, and the businesses that we teamed up with were making Asian specific meals that these tenants could eat and enjoy. And, you know, they distributed those meals to tenants who were too afraid to go out. I mean, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, I mean, we just didn't know how bad this thing was. So if you're an older person and you're stuck in a house and you're just terrified to go out, you know, these meals were probably, you know, really appreciated. So yeah, um, the mutual aid was huge. It took a lot of effort. We had lots of volunteers distributing these meals and um, yeah, I mean, huge success. And again, like mutual aid is a, it's an anarchist practice basically, you know, yep. uh, like the idea of mutual aid. And um, we, we got it up and running so quickly. And I think that's kind of what I want to highlight is like how fast uh, grassroots organizations are able to adapt and move to like the situation at hand, because again, we aren't a rigid structural foundation. We're not waiting for uh, executive director and our board to like approve like this budget and you know, none of that. It's just like, what do we need to do? Who can do it? And let's go, you know. And so, to me, it was a testament to, um, to that sort of grassroots ethos. Um, yeah. So the pandemic really was a good um, was a good test for CCD's relationship with the community, and hopefully, we continue that. You know, we we're still doing mutual aid. Um, we're still doing a lot of the work because the pandemic isn't over. You know. And we were, again, I'll bring up this food distribution thing that happened recently. We were shocked. It's like, it's basically been a year and now they're doing a food distribution in Chinatown. Oh. You know, like why, why now? Like it's been a year. What were they doing this entire time? Is it for publicity? Is it because of the recent uh, 
anti-Asian violence? Like, why are they doing it now? You know, you really have to ask yourself, you know, if you're the politicians. Probably what, because they heard y'all were doing mutual aid and now they just want to <laughs> right. displace. Yeah. Right. It's too little too late, you know. Any plans on carrying on the mutual aid af- even after it ends or expand it or refine it? That's a great question. I mean, I'm not sure where the mutual aid team is at, but I feel like, you know, we will always defer to the tenants and see what they want. You know, if they're like, you know what, like, you know, the pandemic is under control and we don't need the meals anymore, then I feel like we'll hear that. So I think we'll, you know, it, it depends on what people need as time goes on. I think um, that mutual aid is is such a powerful organizing tool as well because, um, you know, a lot of people don't have access to the internet, aren't on social media. And um, so, yeah, it's like if, if the people who are in these mutual aid networks um, – if their voices can be harnessed um, and they often are harnessed, but if they they were all harnessed at the same time, you know, around, around certain issues, I mean, it could just flip the script. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. We need that big mass movement and, you know, moving it beyond just our localities into something much bigger. Yeah. That's, that's definitely the dream. So what changes do you think need to be made to achieve housing equity um, in, say, Chinatown or L.A.? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> when I, as I hear, I'm like, oh, that's a big one. Um, yeah, I think that, you know, on the one hand, you know, some of it is like, we're going to continue to call on our electeds to stop siding with developers. Like that's like a big thing that we want to continue to do. Um, like, you know, st- we want them to stop siding with them, allowing them to come in, allowing them to move forward with uh, really big projects that have no affordable housing. Um, there's some other wild stuff happening. Like there's this new proposed project um, for basically, um, they call it the gondola project um, for basically uh, this, um, what I see is like maybe a cable car, cable car to sort of float above Chinatown um, to go between Union Station and uh, yeah, Union Station and Dodger Stadium. And it's a very like ridiculous project project and the city i think it's the city who really continues to allow these projects to come into chinatown they're not standing up for the tenants they're not thinking about who actually lives here um they're just kind of like allowing things to come through um so that's definitely something that we're continue to call for i wouldn't say that's what we think is like the main thing that needs to be changed um we will continue to organize and like continue to build power in chinatown um but i think that like there definitely have to be some huge changes. And so like one of them that I think is really like exciting on the forefront of what could really be changing for communities across LA is our fight for eminent domain with the Hillside Via building. Um, And so I'm not as directly involved in that project, but it's a really incredible fight. Like so many tenants, like I think the building itself, Hillside Via has over a hundred units and there's like really engaged leaders um, who are, 
who are really just like, who are fighting all the time, like very, I think they meet every week um, and they're fighting for, I think first it was against rent increases, landlord harassment, that kind of thing. And then realizing like, you know what, we're going to call for eminent domain. We're going to call for um, uh, this building to be taken over and to be made into affordable housing, um, to taken off the market away from this landlord. And so they've been doing really powerful actions. I think only a couple of days ago, they did this really amazing projection on LA Convention Center um, to highlight, you know, this is like, this, we've already been displaced out of these kinds of places like the Convention Center. Um, this building, LA Convention Center, costs 500 million to create and just talking about these like moments when eminent domain has been used to displace people but we really wanted to be used in a good way that's community serving this time um so I think that's like really huge and I know we're like you know been talking for a long time but we do have like a clip of um one of our leaders talking and we wonder if you'd be okay to play that maybe Ryan you can be our engineer on that one we're in the middle of a huge housing crisis right now. And Hillside Villa, well, we're just a very small piece of the puzzle. And hopefully we're laying down a new blueprint through eminent domain to help people keep their homes. Part of our housing crisis is the fact that we have the covenants expiring all over the city. We are a prime example of what's gonna happen to thousands of other people within our city if we do not take action. We've been going through this for 18 months and every battle that we've come up against, all the evictions, all the rent increases, every single thing we have won, hands down. And we went out, we protested, we got the city involved, we went to the city council member's house, you name it, we've done it. Why am I in domain? After a year and a half of trying to negotiate with him and the city trying to negotiate with bots, at this point, I don't think we have any other choice. If you have opportunity to work with the city, and the city is willing to pay you market rates to keep those tenants in home, then why not do it? I was homeless at one time. I know what it's like to be homeless. And when I think of anybody else becoming homeless, it just breaks my heart. And when I see owners of properties who are so willing to throw people out, I have very little compassion for them because they're showing us very little compassion. So when we have senior citizens people who are handicapped and low income who do not have a voice, it's all of our responsibility to speak up. I'm fighting for my fellow tenants who have become my family. If you go to any of our meetings, we always start out with the chant that always ends in the word familia, because that's what we are. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I just want to for, for folks who aren't familiar with eminent domain, um, I just want to explain that it's a legal means by which the government can um, take land um, that's already privately owned for the fair market price. Um, and um, there's actually uh, a council member who um, I believe did propose for the Hillside Villa property to be um, to be um, bought by the government through eminent domain. Is that right? Yes, Adio, who's the council member in that district, proposed it. That's a huge win already, right there, and that was through 
years of organizing um, by the tenants of Hillside Villas and the various organizations that that supported them, including y'all, CCED. So thank you for doing that. Yay. Yeah. So there's been all this uh, anti-Asian violence um, and recently CCED took a strong stance about organizing around that issue in LA specifically. Why did you feel it was important to take that stance? So I think, you know, for us, we, we were very concerned with the the rhetoric turning into anti-blackness and so you know i think that was our starting point is really taking seriously um this problem of um maybe what uh the afro-pessimist frank wilderson would call like junior partners asian americans being junior partners to whiteness um participating in a society that is inherently anti-Black. So I felt like, you know, um, our movement in CCD was to realign the conversation and, and look at like the real cause of violence in our communities, um, not to diminish uh, the violence that we've been seeing in recent, you know, weeks, but just to say that like the violence is um, arises out of conditions that are already in place um, by, you know, the society and by the systems that keep people, um, you know, in poverty or, you know, in housing insecurity or, um, you know, feeling like they're in these unsafe spaces or feeling isolated away from community support. Um, and I guess we just didn't want to fall into, um, sort of punitive justice models, you know, if, if we also, um, believe in things like, uh, the, the prison industry, industrial complex and abolition, then we can't then go and demand, um, you know, that those things are enacted against, uh, other people, you know, uh, we have to find like alternative models. So I, I guess like uh, tentatively, those are my thoughts to this question as to like why we felt like we wanted to participate in this conversation. And there was, um, I think there was like one, at least one person who offered to like escort people, like older folks or something like that. And, um, I, I think that, and, and I guess people are doing that in up in um, the Bay as well. And I think that it's, you know, people should be, you know, protecting each other. Yeah. Community security is, is definitely something that we've had to think about a lot more. And I think um, the BLM protests really uh, had us having those conversations anew this past year and talking about, you know, what would that look like? How do we have community safety um, without relying on the police state? And those those are really uh, imaginative spaces to occupy. They're not quite grounded um, just yet, but we have to have that imagination, I think, as activists or as organizers or as a political force, you know, to find these alternatives, because it seems to me that um, what we have right now is not working for everyone. 
And it's not the politicians who are going to come up with the with the solutions um, because they're not incentivized to do that. Community self-defense is a part of mutual aid as well. <laughs> Probably not the one we have right now, but definitely more imaginative. Yeah. And I think, you know, in looking back at our post, you know, I think another thing that kind of underlies it is this idea of like sustained commitment, you know, building community in the long term. So it seems that when these things happen, a lot of people come out of the woodwork suddenly. And that's great. Again, these politicizing moments are are important, but also there's kind of this call, I think, for people to commit to a more sustained effort because the violence in our communities is not just something that gets uh, caught on a video camera all the time. Yeah. It's It happens very slowly. It's a very sinister, uh, like slow process. You know, it's not, it's not something that is overtly violent, but I think we kind of see it as violent. And so we're asking people to kind of look at the underlying conditions that then create, um, you know, these, these moments where violence kind of explodes into the public consciousness. Well, that segues into our next question. You're here like sustaining the community, but we ask this question a lot. How do you sustain yourself and avoid burnout? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that we obviously don't have the answers. So many of us are tired, um, you know, struggle with, you know, balancing these feelings of like, I want to take care of myself, but like, there really feels often like there aren't other organizations to this to do this work if we don't. Um, and so I think we really balance that and it's really tough. And especially when it comes to language capacity, like Brian was talking about before, like if you're one of our few fluent Cantonese speakers, um, you're doing a lot, you know, like um, you're, you're talking to tenants all the time, you're on the phone. So, you know, it's really a, something that we're all like sort of sitting with. Um, I will say that like some shifts that have happened in our organization, I think really lend itself to sustainability. And some of that is like rotating more, like rotating who does what, unless like one person sort of takes all the weight of something um, and really allowing ourselves to do that a little bit more. Um, I know that so many of us have tendencies to be like, oh, I can just do it. I just do it myself. Um, but really trying to delegate past work off to newer people, um, and like Brian was saying that we have really grown how many volunteers are involved with us. Like I think throughout our meal deliveries, maybe over a hundred volunteers have been helping us, which is like really incredible. Um, and so through that, we've really been able to um, take on more things, um, ease up on some of folks burdens. Um, and so I think that's really like the way to go to continue to shift and allow us to be flexible in how we hold work. Um, yeah. And I guess like one other thing that we're also trying to do more of, especially because we have so many more people, I think it's almost like, um, you know, you live with roommates for a long time and then you have like a new roommate who comes. And so you start doing more fun things because there's a roommate there, a new person. So I kind of feel like as we have all these new volunteers, we're like, oh, we should have more social we should have more like get to know you activities. So I really see us doing that a little bit more. Um, and I think that's really like caring for ourselves 
um, making sure we're devoting energy to relationships, building relationships within our organization. Um, and I usually tell our, our new volunteers that like, you know, it's the relationships you build here that are going to keep you showing up. You're not going to keep showing up if you don't know anyone and you feel really disconnected. Um, and so that's like we see is like, you have to remind ourselves that's really important too for us to like have fun together, continue to get to know each other. I love it. It's the extrovert technique of not burning out. <laughs> That's how I'm able to stay in organizing for so long. (laughs) Yeah, that's so true. Like being friends with the folks that you're with and making sure you're having fun and not just always doing the work. Um, I would, I I love what Katie said. I think it's so true. And it really is like a, a difficult question when you're all volunteer. I think I might just add that like recently we started um, like almost more formally thinking about conflict resolution, even like the smallest of conflicts. And so, um, and this was something I was kind of a part of um, helping create in CCD. So I feel uh, strongly about it that, um, you know, even the first thing that we did with conflict resolution was we asked everyone to debrief with someone else that they had done a project with this year. So let's say Katie and I, you know, we worked on a pamphlet together. Maybe we would debrief and be like, how is it working with me? You know, what could we have done better? Um, How could communication be better? And I think that kind of ties into burnout. It's like, do you feel like it's a healthy space? Do you feel like you're heard? Do you feel like you're supported by your co-organizers? Or are you holding a lot of resentment? And is there a formal way to like let go of that resentment in a healthy way? And usually there's not, you know? And so it happens in an informal sort of messy, maybe unhealthy, maybe toxic way. And that's what we don't really want um, within an organization. Like, I think we're really mindful of infighting, you know, and we don't want that to like take over our our work. Um, and yeah, just trusting that people are going to fill in. So I think for me, it's just like um, trying not to like hold on to cards and letting other people pick up where I'm going to leave off. Um, and I'm coming across this problem right now. Cause I'm about to go, um, into like, I do film. So I'm about to like start a film. And so I know that I'm going to, you know, be stepping away from CCD during this time. Cause I really just am going to be focusing on this one thing. So, um, yeah, it's like, you know, I'm, I've been thinking about how do I do that in a healthy way? I'm not sure, you know, but I think um, we have to let ourselves have these breaks. Otherwise, yeah, you're going to burn out. Yeah. I think a lot of organizations, especially because there are so many new grassroots organizations and even really well-established organizations are struggling with um, how to um, have you know, grievance processes and dis- dispute resolution processes. Um, I'm seeing that a lot. That could be a whole other podcast. <laughs> yeah, that would be a great podcast. Um, okay, so how can people get plugged in with you? Um, are you looking for more volunteers? Um, do you want to send volunteers to other organizations? That's a really good question. Um, I mean, of course, we'd always love new volunteers. Um, so that's, yeah, that's definitely a yes for us. Um, you know, reach out, tell us what you want to do and we'll see, you know, um, how we can onboard 
you. Um, yeah, I think getting involved in local tenant unions, your own building, um, you know, creating those connections. I think there's, there's something radical just about like not being insular and, you know, and actually like engaging with a community of some sort. So I think whatever that community is that, um, you're passionate about is, is definitely a good way to get into housing rights. Cause I, I think gentrification is widespread, you know, or housing, housing rights or tenant rights is a widespread issue. Um, so yeah, I think there's plenty of opportunity to find entry points. And what are the specific volunteer roles that you're looking to fill at CCD? Hmm, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, I, I think it might go back to the language thing. Um, it might go back to, I, I think we, we like people who are self-directed, who, um, you know, aren't afraid to do outreach, let's say, and go out into the community or make phone calls or do um, like admin, you know, spreadsheets, like organizing um, the different tenants we're talking to or different systems we have in place. So, yeah, I think there's plenty of room for people to work, but maybe Katie, you have something to add. Yeah, I would just add that definitely on the like back end work side, like me as somebody who doesn't have a lot of language capacity, um, I feel like it's really, yeah, we really need people who are excited to like, like Brian saying, like do things, you know, jump in, um, you know, get their hands dirty. I think like some of what the roles that I see are like um, in my fighting developments committee, we have meetings every like two weeks and we talk about, you know, we're looking for people to help think about like, what can we be doing around this specific fight? You know, as we're, as we're seeing this new gondola project, what should we be doing? Who can we be connecting with? So people who are like willing to get their like gears and their brain moving um, around kind of like creative ways to do things. Um, and then another thing that I think is a really like common place for our new volunteers to join into is our research committee. So we have like a crew of folks that are doing research. Um, and I feel like we get, we do get a lot of people who come from academia and like are in school, you know, and are really like up for that kind of work. And we super need it. It's like often like how do we really make a comment about this new development coming? Like, what does that really look like? Um, who do we talk to? Um, who is the person that really owns this new thing that's coming in? Um, what do they have to do with all these other people that have built things in Chinatown? So I think we're constantly trying to like gather information um, and figure out how to like zoom out um, and look at like how do all these pieces fit together and how can that inform our fight? Um, so, so many different kinds of roles. And for people who don't have a ton of time, maybe they could get plugged into the mutual aid aspect. Yeah, I think we still have people who are like helping to deliver food. I think um, I'm like so amazed by our mutual aid work we've done. Like um, there's been times when we've done like at least twice a week food delivery, meal delivery. At the beginning of the pandemic, we were doing like delivery of supplies. Um, so it's just like, there's been so much work done. And I think that's really definitely a place that we can use volunteers. Um, and then for people who don't have a lot of time, just like support us, share out our materials, our stuff, um, stay in the loop of what's going on. Um, and like- Donate. <laughs> yeah, donate. Um, we are all volunteer. We like use all our money on like flyers and that kind of stuff. Um, so we, you know, we always need support. Cool. Well, 
I think that's it for our question. Thanks so much um, for joining us today. It was, I learned a lot. How about you, Rex? Goy, for all the work you'd all do. Happy Lunar New Year. Yes, Happy Lunar New Year. And thank you for saying all that. Thanks for having us on. This has been super great and really nice to just like talk to you all and hear your experiences too and kind of your context for, you know, things that we're thinking about also. Yeah, it's really great hearing your stories and where they like all we've crossed. (laughs) Even if we haven't crossed paths in person, like so many of what y'all are doing. It's just where I've been at as well. That's probably we'll visit y'all CCD (laughs) if I head back down to LA beautiful would love that all right for having us thanks so much thank you for tuning in to another episode of whatsapp remember to like subscribe or follow be sure to leave a comment because we always look forward to feedback and enjoy hearing what our listeners have to say